Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hey folks, this is the Am I Called podcast and I'm your host, Dave Harvey. The issue of where the church should sit in the public square is a topic under considerable debate right now. It's a, it's a topic made even more significant by the upcoming presidential election and some of the most polarizing primaries I think Americans have seen in the last 40 years. Seeking to influence these issues is the ERLC, which stands for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, which, by the way, is an arm of the Southern Baptists that is led by Dr. Russell Moore, who is our guest for today's podcast. Dr. Moore is an author. He's a theologian. He's an ethicist. He runs a podcast as well. It's really pretty hard to find a medium where this man is not seeking to help people connect their Bible to their culture and he comes to us today through the wonders of Skype. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for joining us for the Am I Called podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you. Dr. Moore, when I think of the average pastor, I think of someone who is buried in pastoral care. They're in counseling. They're doing church meetings. They're doing message preparation. And if he's looking outside the church at all, he's going to be looking to maybe dabble in evangelism or service community in some kind of meaningful way. Should a pastor be making political engagement and religious liberty a, a priority as well? And if the answer to that is is yes, tell us how come. Well, uh, yes, and I think the, the, the reason for that is because um, one of the things that we're called to do in equipping the saints is to uh, shape and form uh, consciences for all of their uh, all of their our, our various callings. And one of the callings that we have is that of a citizen. So if you think of, uh, for instance, what is, is happening when John the Baptist is preaching in, in Luke 3, and you have, uh, you have officials in the government of Rome, you have tax collectors and you have soldiers who are coming and saying, well, what, what do we do now? Uh, now that we're repentant, and the message that, that John has is don't, uh, don't extort, don't uh, coerce, um, and and live out uh, live out your your vocation there as a as a Christian. Well, the people that we're evangelizing and discipling have a variety of of vocations. Um, one of those vocations is as citizen. And so, when we think, for instance, of issues of um, of religious freedom, uh, in our system of government, uh, every body is a stakeholder and a decision maker who is a who is a citizen. And so, if we're not shaped and formed to do that in a way that's just uh, and and in a way that that doesn't, for instance, coerce people uh, when it comes to to issues of of faith, then uh, we're actually part of the uh, part of the, the the persecutors. I mean, that's that's the the real question, and so we we speak and we equip people to do that, but we do that in the same way that we do uh, when we're talking about social our, our social uh, uh, questions of justice. In the same way that we do when we're talking about the questions of personal uh, morality. Um, the Bible doesn't make distinction uh, between those two things. When you look at um, you look at the the prophets, they're talking about 
sexual immorality right alongside talking about uh, the mistreatment of the poor. James does does the same thing. Yeah, and let, me, so, let me jump in here and ask a question so that you can break this down a little bit more because, it, you know, if you're, if you're seeking to identify maybe the core issues that you think every pastor should be tracking in order to build the kind of consciences that we need and that the people that we're serving need, or they should be conversant on. What, how do you communicate that core? What would that core be? Well, I think that, that some of that is going to be transcendent. Uh, and so you're, you're, you're in, no matter where you are, you, one of the primary issues you're going to have to be uh, dealing with is the question of human dignity. Uh, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And so uh, constantly training people to uh, recognize that human beings matter not on the basis of their power or their, uh, their, their, their temporal position, but because all people are made in the image of God and therefore vulnerable people matter. That's, that's always, no matter where you are, that's always going to be a persistent issue. But then we have to ask, what are the particular areas that my people uh, right now are grappling with in my specific context? And so if you are... If you're a missionary to, uh, to India in the 19th century or the 18th century, you, you're going to have to address uh, the, the, the status of widows. Uh, what happens when you have a culture where widows are often expected to be burned on their husband's funeral pyres? Mm. And so you have, to, you have to address that specifically. Um, in a way that you wouldn't have to do that if you're uh, pastoring a church uh, right now in uh, in uh, in Columbus, Ohio. You're, the 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 to to get up and to preach about burning widows would be ridiculous. But you are going to have to get up and talk about, for instance, um, the 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 temptation to view uh, for for women to view their dignity in terms of their sexual availability or attractiveness to men and for men to view them that way. So you're asking where are the where are the specific areas of deception and accusation going on in my context and and let me address those. And human dignity is then the portal to a lot of those so, social issues. So as a as a pastor develops a a theology of human dignity, he's going to find himself armed to be able to address some of these other areas. Yes, he's going to he's going to have to be uh, consistently asking who are the people that we are tempted to think don't matter and, and don't count, and so is is this uh, the unborn? Are these uh, immigrant uh, communities around us? Are these uh, elderly uh, people? Are, uh, who, who are the people that we're tempted to forget about? Uh, what about uh, uh, those uh, uh, children with uh, dis- disabilities uh, in our community? Are we ignoring them? Are we mm-hmm. uh, dehumanizing them? And then when you look at even uh, these questions of uh, religious liberty and religious freedom, what does it mean uh, to treat people with dignity um, as, as human beings? Well, part of that means that we don't believe that we can uh, coerce people uh, into uh, belief or into, into faith. This is something that God has to do by the power of the Spirit. Nor do we think that, that, we, ought to, um, that we ought to inhibit people 
uh, from from pursuing uh, religious truth, even when uh, they are uh, pursuing religious ideas or, uh, or or practices that we believe are wrong. Uh, we we don't have the power as the church. We've not been given the power of the sword to uh, determine that. And so we we advocate for uh, freedom. For for instance, when when you've got a community where um, people are wanting to zone the mosque uh, out of uh, existence because Muslims are uh, unpopular. Well, if we really have an understanding of um, if we have an understanding of the gospel as the power of God and salvation, then we we don't believe it's the state's business to uh, to try to write people out of the community. And we know that even if we've got the temporal power to do that, uh, we don't make people into Christians. We just make people into pretend Christians. And so that's not what, that's not what gospel witness is. And so that, that, that's sort of reminding ourselves consistently, what does it mean to be human? And then how do human beings best flourish? So what, what does it mean for, um, uh, for, for families to be strong, for, uh, for, for meaningful work uh, to be available, for um, uh, uh, moving people away from, from the despair that comes with anesthetizing themselves through uh, dangerous substances or, or, or whatever the particular set of challenges are in your, yeah, in your area? That's very helpful. I, you know, I think, my, I think my first exposure to your writing was uh, years ago on the issue of, of gender. And I think it was, a, it was a paper you wrote, Why Egalitarians Are Winning the Gender War. Yeah. And uh, you, you made a really interesting point that a lot of complementarians are, are theologically complementarian, but, but kind of functionally, once they get home and, and close the door, they're functionally egalitarian. Yeah. Um, who's winning the gender war these days? Well, you know, I've completely changed my mind on, uh, on, that, uh, on that issue because at the time, I really, um, as a complementarian, I believed that we were losing uh, that, that argument. I no longer think that. Because um, what has what has changed is that the um, the issues of sexuality and gender identity have uh, have highlighted uh, what uh, the, the scriptural witness to complementarity and um, the, the at, several years ago there was a strong uh, presence in evangelical Christianity of people who were. Uh, egalitarian on questions of gender, but were otherwise uh, completely orthodox. I mean, you can think of many names of people. I think of Millard Erickson and Roger Nicole and other mm-hmm. other figures who were uh, strongly committed to the authority of Scripture and to uh, and every other aspect of orthodoxy. But they believed that um, that there was no distinction in terms of of calling for for men and women within the church or the home. Well, now. Uh, if you if you look around, you really don't find uh, very many uh, leaders in evangelicalism who fit into that category. Many of the people who are uh, who are egalitarian leaders now are also um, are also unorthodox, uh, for for lack of a better word, on a variety of other issues. It's eliminated the middle ground. It really has, yeah. And why is that? 
Well, because uh, because in order to address, say, uh, for instance, the the questions of homosexuality and uh, and transgender uh, issues and so forth, um, one has to deal with the big picture of uh, scripture, not only with specific texts, but also with the big picture of what does it mean to be created uh, male and female. And I think that that sort of being forced into articulating that kind of biblical theology uh, lends itself to at least some form of complementarianism. Now, having said that, I think that there is a um, there is a a way in which there is a kind of complementarianism that wants to view everything through the prism of gender wars and can and can reinforce stereotypical notions of masculinity and femininity that are not uh, found in Scripture. And we have to constantly be on guard against that. And the stakes are especially high right now uh, when it comes to, to that because, um, you know, if you've got your your 14-year-old young woman who never liked Barbie dolls, she never liked uh, princesses, she, she liked NASCAR and basketball and, and, and those sorts of things. In a previous era, she would have just, she would have just been called a, a tom girl or something like that. Now, because she has a lot of cultural pressure around her, she has to ask herself, am I really a woman at all? And so if she only sees womanhood and femininity in terms of, of those uh, cultural stereotypes of what femininity are, uh, can be, then uh, she's going to be she's going to be placed into a, a place of great confusion and great danger. The biblical definition of femininity is much broader than that, uh, and so we have to be constantly reminding ourselves that David is a warrior and a harpist. Uh, Mary is uh, someone who has a certain kind of gentleness. She also is singing a war hymn. Uh, when 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 she receives the annunciation of the of, of the birth of, of Jesus, and so those those sorts of things have to constantly be held in in tension because with the 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 kind of gender ideologies that we see around us right now, they start with this attempt to obliterate gender distinctions. There's no distinction between male and female; these are arbitrary categories. But they ultimately end up with a really rigid form of of uh, of gender stereotypes so Caitlyn Jenner is uh, is uh, you know, if you if you look at the cover of Vanity Fair with Caitlyn Jenner uh, that picture in a previous era would have been what feminists would have called uh, the objectification and exploitation of women but now that becomes what it means to be a woman because it's not something that is that is embedded in who we are created to be. It's the, in the expression of hair and makeup and and uh, this mm-hmm. this sense of culturally defined uh, sexual attractiveness. Uh, so that that's what we have to we have to be the people who are who are constantly uh, calling us back to uh, a different pattern of what it means to be created male and female. You know, Doctor Morrow, as I think about your work, your ministry, it, it occurs to me that you spend a lot of your life with a with a microphone in your face, and uh, 
It, it makes me wonder when when Wall Street Journal contacts you or USA Today or Meet the Press or whoever it might be to, to represent a Christian perspective on public policy, what are the goals that you have in mind for engaging them? Well, what what I what I want to do in those contexts are really it's the same sort of thing that any of us who preach regularly have to do, which is to say, if I'm getting up and I'm preaching a sermon, I'm going to recognize that I'm probably going to have multiple audiences uh, around me. I mean, of course, first we have the audience of, of God and uh, our accountability and, and faithfulness to speak truthfully uh, what, what God has, has given us to say. But even beyond that, with the, I'm going to have potentially uh, someone in the room who is um, not a Christian and who is uh, weighing the uh, claims of Christ. So I want to speak to that person. I, I'm, I'm going to have somebody in the room who is believing that he or she is is not in need of mercy or, or forgiveness. I want to speak to that person and call that person to repentance. I'm going to have someone else who, who may be weighted down with accusation and needs the, the liberating word of the gospel. As you're trying to hit all of those things uh, at the same time. When I'm talking to media, I recognize that the same thing is going on. I want to speak in a way that can uh, address a non-Christian person with a, a, at least a little uh, insight into what it means to be uh, a Christian, what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus. Then I also want to uh, try to give a little model uh, for Christians of what it means to interact and dialogue with people who disagree. Because you're, you're right, most people don't have to do what I do talking to NBC News or New York Times or Wall Street Journal or, or whatever every day. But they all have to do that because most Christians have Facebook pages. Um, all Christians have people in their communities, often within even their extended families and sometimes their immediate families, who don't agree with them. On, on really important issues. And so um, I want to kind of model how to do that in a way that doesn't caricature um, other people's views, doesn't uh, take cheap shots, um, but tries to faithfully, uh, faithfully articulate a Christian vision in a way that's, that's, that's trying to make a, a connection personally with people in order to uh, in order to speak to them, I don't always uh, do that well, and uh, and and neither neither will will most people. We're all going to find ourselves later on where we say, you know, I really my engagement with this person wasn't what it should have been. Okay, well then we we try to do better the next time. But that's that's kind of the what I'm what I'm working myself through when I'm talking to to folks like that. You know, one of the messages that I that I don't hear very often from from believers when they think about influencing social issues or persuading on public policy is just the idea of of love. And part of what I'm thinking about there is I, I heard a quote a while back by a guy named Lem Tucker. I think he worked at he was the director of Voice of Calvary, uh, John Perkins organization, and he mm -hmm. said, "He who has the greatest truth." has the greatest love, which is the greatest proof. In other words, there's this idea that great, 
great truth will inspire great love, which will then kind of substantiate and authenticate the truth that you carry. There's a me- there's a connection between the message and the the method. And 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 I wonder, you know, as you're thinking about training pastors or advocating for how pastors should be approaching this, I, to what extent should they be thinking about that connection with their message? or I should say between their message and their motives or their message and their means of communicating it. It, it has to be, uh, it has to be at the forefront all the time. And, 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 and one of the, the things about American culture right now is that it's really easy to, um, to deal with issues in the abstract rather than, recognizing that all of these issues have people connected to them. And mm-hmm. so uh, we, we, have to, we have to just consistently be taking ourselves back to, um, back to the, the, the life of Jesus to whom we're connected as a body to a head and to realize that Jesus is never shocked or disgusted by sinners um, but is 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 driven to compassion as those who are are sheep without a shepherd, and it's it's easy for us to kind of invert what the apostle Paul is teaching in First Corinthians five, in which he says um, he, he he says I do not judge those who are on the outside, which doesn't mean that he doesn't um, that he doesn't have moral discernment about what's going on on the outside. He obviously does, even in that chapter. But he says, I don't hold them to account. It's those who are on the inside that I judge. It's easier to do it the reverse because if we, the people who are of our tribe who are around us, well, we can understand um, their failings and, and their sins because they, they're similar sometimes to our own. And we're, we're never shocked by our own sins. We're never revolted by our own sins we 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 can find all kinds of mid even when we're even when we're sorrowful for them we we have much more empathy for the sins that we endure but when we look at people on the outside we sometimes tend to think of them as our enemies as people who are um who are uh, just uh you know somewhere plotting to destroy us and the gospel and everything else and in reality, what that shows is that we don't really have a very deep view of sin, because what what the biblical view of sin tells us is there's a way that seems right to a man, and the end thereof is death. And so um, everybody has a way of viewing their particular path in life as being good and and being virtuous and even if it's not working for them at the moment they don't see themselves as villains and so if we can't understand that and and figure out well why and how are they able to to think that way then we're not really going to be able to address them at the level of conscience and so that means um that means loving people enough to spend time figuring out the way that they see and perceive uh, reality. Yeah, identifying the path that they're on, grac- yeah. graciously meeting them there and and guiding them toward the gospel. Yeah. It, it, it occurs to me, Dr. Moore, that part of what you're doing, part of what your call is, is to kind of anticipate where things are headed 
and think about how the church should position itself. And yes, I think as we're as we're looking out over the landscape, it certainly doesn't take a profit to see that the church's credibility in the public square is is not what it was. There's the waning of our moral authority. Um, what what are the opportunities? for the church that you see that are kind of tucked within these declines or these realities? Well, I really don't think that we're facing any sort of uh, decline at all. Um, I, I think that what we're, what we're facing is not, um, I mean, someone asked me the other day, you know, if only we could just get back to the place where we were before the culture fell apart then then we would be all right. And I said, well, the problem is you don't remember when uh, the time was before the culture fell apart because the culture fell apart somewhere between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers <laughs> in Genesis chapter 3. And so a response of nostalgia um, is, is not a, a biblical response. We're always living in a post-Eden time. And the, the sort of chaos that comes with that is either more or less obvious to us, but it's, it's always there. And so the people who, uh, the temptation that we will sometimes have to think of, well, remember the good old days uh, before the church lost all of its influence, that, that usually tells us more about ourselves than it tells us about history. Mm-hmm. So it tells us, you know, we, we value, for instance, external uh, sexual morality and watered-down generic civil religion more than we care about uh, racial justice. Yeah, there were, and that we're white rather than African American. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, so if you if you think, well, the 1950s uh, or the 1980s, uh, these were these were were good times. Well, the the question is, good times for whom? And and what sort of what sort of witness did the church in fact have? I think what we see happening right now is that you have um, you have a you do you do not have a um, you do not have a secularization in um, in American life uh, so much as you have a pluralization in American life that gives people the freedom to be honest about what they really believe and where they really belong. So a lot of what we had uh, in, in American life in the past, especially in the Bible Belt, was a, um, a kind of forced conformity where people had to externally identify with Christianity in order to be a part of the culture. But the kind of Christianity they had to be a part of was a surface-level, very uh, moralistic and nationally defined sort of uh, civil religion uh, of Christianity. It wasn't Book of Acts, Gospel Christianity. And so if we lament having lost that, then we're really contradicting what Jesus is teaching because we're assuming that Nicodemus is a really good model of the Christian life when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so we now have the opportunity when people are able to genuinely tell us, this is who I am. Um, that's, that's actually 
uh, a good part of what we've been called to do is to get at who people really are in order to have uh, in order to have that gospel witness. I mean, Jesus is Jesus is uh, consistently in his encounters wanting to wanting to push people back from behind whatever they're hiding behind to get it. Here's the real issue for you. Well, American culture is is doing that. Uh, people are able to honestly come forward with this is who I am, which gives us an opportunity for genuine, authentic gospel witness. And so I'm, uh, I'm very optimistic and hopeful about the future. And part of that is because I don't hold to the secular progressive myth that says that people move inevitably toward greater and greater secularization. Uh, Rodney Stark has a, a new book about the, 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 the state of faith in the world, and um, his argument, and I think he's right as he's looking demographically, is that the world is not becoming more secular, the world is becoming more religious, including in those places that are the most secular. So if you go to um, if you go to places like Iceland and Scandinavia, the trajectory is not uh, onward and upward through secularization. It's toward uh, all these various alternative spiritualities, the resurgence of uh, paganism and and, uh, and and those sorts of things. Well, why? Well, it's because people do have an a need to believe in things that transcend uh, what they can see and know, and a longing for mystery, and that's going to be directed somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so when people are burned over by materialistic secularization, they, they have to turn in some direction. Okay, well, good. Let's have our Elijah uh, and prophets of, of Baal moments uh, with the, the articulation and the open uh, proclamation of the gospel, and I think that the, the possibilities there are really, really good because I have confidence in the power of the gospel to to transform and to save. Let me uh, shift gears again, Dr. Moore, and I'll make this my last question. Um, this podcast that we're doing exists not only to produce leadership content, but to help men who sense a call to to ministry and pastoral ministry uh, to find their way and to help pastors also serve them effectively. So let me get you thinking and just kind of talking a little bit about some advice, maybe one to two pieces of advice that you would give to men who feel called to pastoral ministry to help prepare them to serve well in that role. Well, the, the first thing that I would say is that it... Um, is that God, what I've learned anyway, is that God typically uses a lot of things that in your life you believe were cul-de-sacs or uh, kind of distractions uh, from your calling uh, for reasons that you may not know right now. So in my own life, I, I experienced a call to ministry really early on as a 12-year-old kid uh, or so. Uh, and then I became discouraged in that because as I was looking around, I didn't see any models uh, of ministry that that fit with how God had made me. And so most of the pastors that I knew um, just 
I, I was just able to say, I can't see myself there. And so maybe God has not called me to, to ministry. And so I moved out into a uh, political uh, career, had a lot of journalistic um, elements to it as well. And then uh, only later did I realize, no, God is calling me to ministry and I have to do this. And sometimes I would look back and say, hmm, I really kind of wasted time because if I had just known that I was going to end up in ministry, then I wouldn't have spent all this time on all of these other things that I, that I turned around. Now I look back and I'm able to say, I can see how all of these yeah. threads in my life, God put them together with what he has me doing right now. And that's just what I know about, <laughs> much less the things that I don't know that God's, God's working and moving. And so, so just realize that and know that, that God's, God's preparing you. And then I would say uh, be constantly on the lookout for mentors in your life and and have a sense of gratitude for the people who are able to invest in you and you're going to have different different sorts of people some people are going to be kind of long distance mentors that you 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 benefit from their model i mean i, I can think of people that if it hadn't been for seeing certain people in ministry and saying ah you know, this is this is one of the ways that God can use people in a way that I've never seen before. That was a that, that those people may never never know who I am, but they benefited me in that way. Then other people who were in my life, uh, who were the people who who really um, they 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 invested time in in teaching me or in counseling me or in spending time with me. Look for those people. Pray for those people and. And, and and constantly be looking back and thanking God for all the people who invested themselves in you along the way. I think that's that's just critically important. And then be willing to um, be willing to receive mistakes that you that you make and to learn from those mistakes. And that's something that's difficult for me to do because um, when I look backward in ministry, I tend to. Um, I tend to focus in on three or four big, just uh, just ways that I didn't handle things very well, and it's it's easy to be just kind of haunted by how could I have handled that situation better, um, rather than to say, okay, I can't change that, other than to um, see God's mercy uh, in it, but. How can I learn from that for the next phase of ministry in a way that I won't repeat those errors? And where I know where my blind spots are, where my vulnerabilities are, and, and learn from that. And, and those experiences are oftentimes the, the means of grace that God uses for us to be able to apply the gospel and and then connect with people that are struggling or have suffered through some kind of failure themselves. They become Absolutely. important defining moments and, and lessons. Absolutely, both both in terms of um, uh, both in terms of uh, of helping people not to make the same mistakes that you you made, and also to be able to uh, have a a certain degree of mercy toward people who are so for instance early in my ministry 
um, I was uh, very uh, cocky, um, and every situation I tended to see myself as Martin Luther uh, at uh, you know standing standing with my uh, with my theses being nailed to whatever door I could find, and uh, and and you know when I look back at that and I think oh all of the ways that I I mishandled that well. Now, if I really respond to that well, I'm able to ha- have a certain degree of patience when I have theses being nailed to my door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think uh, I, I think that if you know if, if we if we just if we just spend time saying God may be God may be God may be allowing me to have have erred in those ways without you know God often pulls us back. From making mistakes before we make them, we don't know all the all the ways that his rod and staff have have uh, protected us. But sometimes I think he allows us to go out uh, a certain a certain way because he knows we're going to need to be the people who are going to show mercy to people who who err and struggle and make those same same mistakes later on. Mm, that's that's very helpful and very practical, Doctor Moore. Thank you for providing. The leadership of the ERLC and and also for the voice that you are to evangelicals in an arena where the Christian perspective needs to be heard. Thank you. Well, that's very kind. Thanks so much. Folks, this has been the Am I Called podcast. And for tons of free stuff on leadership and calling and preaching, as well as other podcasts with Zach Eswine and Randy Alcorn and Carl Truman and Paul Tripp and others, And there's also a free assessment on calling. If any of that interests you, go to amicalled.com. This is your host, Dave Harvey. Have a great day.